You're listening to sermons from Church on Bayshore in Niceville, Florida. Our mission is to do whatever it takes to see people believe in Jesus, belong to God's family, and become who God created them to be, impacting the world for Christ. To learn more about our church and to find additional resources, including ways to connect, serve, and give, visit churchonbayshore.org. If you're visiting with us today, let me just say to you how grateful we are that you are here with us. Maybe you're watching online for the first time. Thank you for joining us. We'd love to know you. You can text the word CONNECT uh, to the number 850-600-6779, and one of our Connect team members will follow up with you this week. All right, if you have a Bible with you, you can open it to Philippians chapter 2. It is fitting that today is Super Bowl Sunday Because while all of Scripture is equally inspired, and it all has relevance for what God intends to communicate to us about himself and about ourselves and life, there are some passages of Scripture that are undeniably more remarkable or prominent and are seemingly then more significant. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11 is one of those passages. In it, we have an explanation of the work and person of Christ and a challenge and how we should live our life considering who he is. So it's going to take me five Sundays plus Good Friday to examine these verses to give adequate space to what they reveal to us. So let's start by reading them now. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others." Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Father, there is no way as a flawed, imperfect man I could ever fully communicate the greatness that is contained in these verses. So God, I pray that your spirit would speak through me, speak to us. And I pray that as a result of our time in these verses, people would bow, people would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I pray this in his name, amen. With all of these verses in mind, we will start today by looking closely at verses one through four and the call to a mindset of joy, a mindset of joy. Verses two through four talk about how a mindset of joy manifests itself. But before we talk about what 
we should look like, verse one is where we should start because it shows us a joyful motivation. It shows us a joyful motivation. It shows us why we should be people who live out the attributes described in verses two through four. Verse one says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. Paul isn't asking if the encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the spirit, and affection and sympathy is real. He's using a rhetorical advice to say, if you are experiencing these things, then you should do what verses two through four say. Complete my joy is the central command of this long sentence found in verses one through four. What follows modifies the command to complete my joy, which we will get to in just a few moments. What precedes that command, complete my joy, qualifies the command. I think it's worth noting here the connection to the previous verses in chapter one. If you look at verse one, the first word of verse one is so. Now, there weren't chapter breaks and verses in the original writing of this. We've added those later for reference. So what we read about in chapter one just flows into chapter two. And Paul says, so. Paul has encouraged them so far to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he begins to call them to specifics regarding that. And so he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, the word encouragement is not a word that is passive. It is connected to the idea of being helped actively. The word for the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, comes from this word. Paul is saying, if the Spirit is helping you, if the Spirit is stirring you at all, if he is encouraging you at all. He also says, if there is any comfort from love in verse 1. Comfort is basically a synonym for encouragement. Mark Cowan says its use here emphasizes a doubling up of the same idea. He says, comfort from love. He is saying, if you are encouraged, if you are comforted, if you are helped by being in Christ and by the love of Christ people. He also says, any participation in the spirit in verse one. Participation is more often translated fellowship, and I like that translation better. It's the word koinonia, uh, which was used to refer to a common partnership. Now, what would most often be thought of when you heard that word koinonia, partnership, would be two people who went into business together, particularly a fishing business. And so what would happen is two men would, or maybe more, would, would buy a boat together. They would sell their possessions. They would give up their money. They would buy a boat together. And then that would be their business. And so that was their partnership. So think of two men in a boat, fellowship. Really? No jokes? No laughter? Okay. <laughs> but you'll remember it now. So we're good. So he says then fellowship in the spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the vessel which is carrying us together, which drives home the unity of God's people around what the spirit of God wills to do as we will continue uh, to look at these verses and see. And his last qualify, qualifier here is any affection and sympathy. I'm still recovering for you guys not laughing at my joke. Affection and sympathy are both words that refer to a feeling you have for people connected to your bowels, language used often to refer to how God's people are to feel about one another. Paul uses it in chapter one in reference to his longing for the Philippians. Paul's saying, if you have any of those feelings. So he's saying, if you have encouragement, comfort, fellowship, affection, sympathy, 
Now notice, or hopefully you noticed, his use of the word any. You can see right there in verse 1, he uses it four times. Any encouragement, any comfort, any participation, any affection and sympathy. Paul is saying, if there is any evidence of work of Christ in your life, there should be evidence of the work of Christ if you are following Christ. How much transformation should happen in the life of a Christian and how soon it should happen is debatable. But based on scripture, there should be in some indication by the way you live your life, there should be some fruit in your life that you are following Jesus. I've noticed that there are those who think that people are saved simply because they say they are saved. Yes, the Bible teaches us whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But the Bible also teaches us that many will say in that day of judgment that they had called upon his name when they did not. There is grace of God that someone could die on the cross right before their death next to Jesus. And Jesus would say when they ask for him to remember them that he will remember them in paradise when they were able to do nothing. Grace is that big and covers us in that great way. But grace is big and it changes us. A.T. Robertson said, if Christ makes no appeal to a professed Christian, he is not in Christ. He is out of contact with Christ. He is spiritually dead. If one's own life in Christ does not stimulate the soul to the noblest effort, it is useless to go on with the appeal. Response to stimuli is the sign of life. The absence of it is the proof of death. There should be change when we hear the word of God, whether it's spoken through others, whether we read it. The Spirit convicts and encourages us, and it should be transforming us into the likeness of Christ as we grow in Him. This is why it's concerning when people ignore, reject, or dismiss the Word of God when it comes to their sexuality, when it comes to their money, when it comes to gossip, when it comes to anger. Not because a man said you should be different, but because the Spirit of God leads us to be different. This is why Paul is making this appeal here. And he says, if there's any, J.B. Lightfoot said, if your life is in Christ, your knowledge of Christ speaks to your heart with a persuasive eloquence. If you believe in Jesus, there is encouragement from him. There is comfort from love. There is participation in the spirit. There is affection and sympathy. And so Paul's beginning this appeal here just by saying, hey, this is what Christ does. This is who we are in Christ, and it should lead to this change. Tony Merida says, Paul first mentions the blessings of the gospel before giving certain challenges. If all you ever do is tell people what they're supposed to be doing, they will get burned out. But if we remind, us of, remind them of who Christ is and remind ourselves of who Christ is, it affects how we behave. We need to take note that what we believe determines how we behave. The reason we act in the way that we do is indicative of what it is that we believe about life, about death, about purpose, about God, about others. What we believe determines how we behave. And so therefore, the great appeal in wanting people's behavior to be modified isn't behavior modification, but it's the belief. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul will give ways then that that belief should be transforming us. Frank Thielman says, Paul is not concerned merely with the inner attitudes of individual Philippian believers, but with the concrete expressions of their attitudes in their day-to-day -day encounters with each other. And he gives some of those in verses two through four, where we see joyful 
behaviors, joyful behaviors. Let's read those verses again, verse two through four of Philippians two. It says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. The first behavior that Paul describes here is unity. Paul gives three appeals for unity in verse two. He says, by being of the same mind. That's a Greek word, autophroneo. It means to be like-minded. It means to think in the same way, not in the sense that we are robotic. If we weren't diverse in thinking, there wouldn't be the need for the appeal. But Paul has us thinking in the same way about how to live. The theme of all of our lives should be to live is Christ, to die is gain. He also says one mind there in verse two. He's saying there's one objective, there's one goal, there's one purpose, like a team, like people who are in the military together, that they're all working for one thing. He not only says one mind, but he says the same love, auto agape, having the same love. He has in mind the same love for each other that we have experienced and felt from God. This is not one love, as the world might say, where we begin to cheapen the version definition of love, removing God from the picture. One love versus the same love is like being on the shore of a river, seeing people on a party boat, having fun, and then seeing that a waterfall is coming and that their life is in grave danger and then looking at them and saying, one love, no, they need a life preserver. They need to be rescued. And they might not get to follow their heart and they might not to get, be able to you know, do what they wanna do. But if they don't come to shore, they're in great danger. Like O'Doyle rules, if you know that reference, going off a cliff, seven of you do. God is love. And if we love people, it's defined by God. He also says being in full accord, or sums across is the Greek word here. It's best translated to be of one soul. And again, he's emphasizing how believers should be unified. Uh, just recently, there were four guys who grew up in Niceville. They actually uh, competed in what's called the world's toughest row. They uh, rowed in a boat across uh, the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, I think it was about 40 days. There are other teams doing this as well. And so they're just in this boat on the sea together. And they have to sleep in shifts. They have to work out their, I mean, they have to deny themselves attitude, time, and work together to accomplish this. This is what God has called his church to, to the sacrificial denial of self to be unified around his mission because dying is gain and living is Christ, unity. The second joyful behavior we see here in this text is humility. He says in verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Paul uses the phrase selfish ambition. In literature, prior to the New Testament, this term only appears in Aristotle's Politica, where he discusses the various causes of political revolutions and identifies the greedy grasp for public office as one of them. What Paul is saying here is that the motivation of a Christian should never be self-exaltation. For Christians... Every move, every gain isn't to advance ourselves or our personal agenda, 
It's to advance Christ and his agenda. The way of the world is that we're always angling to make sure our needs are met and that we're getting recognition. So in the way of the world, in marriage, we'll always be thinking about how well the other person is doing at meeting our needs and giving us what we think we deserve. In service, we'll only want to do it if we feel it's organized and most efficient and the people we serve are cooperative and grateful for us. At work, we'll only do what we think will help our career cause us to get noticed. And our life is about our interest and our pursuits and not others. Paul also rebukes conceit. The word conceit is a word vain glory. It's an empty glory. The Super Bowl's tonight. Imagine if one of the receivers or one of the offensive linemen, but let's go with receivers because they're usually faster, went out every single play on offense to set out and just run as fast as he could and show everyone how fast he is. And this guy was fast. We were amazed by his speed, but he never ran the routes. He never blocked when he needed to. And ultimately, he was hurting his team, not hindering his team. Yes, he's maybe the fastest one on the field, but that's all about his glory. When we are living for vain glory, that is how we are living our lives. When people's greatest priority is their own glory, their aim is to let everybody know how wonderful they are. We all know that guy, right? When you tell them who you met, they say, oh, well, here's who I've met. Or when you tell them about the vacation you went on, they're like, oh, well, here's the vacation I went on. You know, or here's what my kids did or what my kids can do. Or here's what my religion is like. It's vain glory. And Paul says in verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. We need to check our hearts and ask, is there anything in me that is about my personal agenda? That is about my ambition and my glory? Am I trying to elevate myself? And the antidote, to selfish ambition and conceit is given to us here in verse three, it's humility. Ancient writers referred to humility as a weakness of character. Pretty much all non-biblical literature in this day saw humility as a negative. And Jesus says, humility. Notice that Paul says, in humility. The word is really to be humble in mind. It's a mindset. Humility is a choice that we make, and it's a choice that we make not just once, but clothes we're going to wear for the rest of our lives. And because of the sinfulness and fallen world we live in, pride is like gravity we have to fight against. It's a force that never goes away. When St. Augustine was asked, what are the central principles of the Christian life? He replied, number one is humility. Number two is humility. And number three is humility. Now you might say, well, what about self-esteem? What about self-confidence? C.S. Lewis once said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Humility comes from realizing who we are in Christ. If there is any encouragement in Christ, we can be humble because we know we don't have to prove ourselves to anyone else when we belong to him. Humility is a behavior that God, the Spirit, does in our life that fills our life with joy. The third joyful behavior here is duty. 
That's a word that people under the age of 50, oh, sorry, Gen X or whenever, however old you are now, don't like. But here's what Paul writes. Count others more significant than yourselves. The word count, the Greek word there, is actually a word that refers to rule or judgment. And it carries with it the image of a governor or a king or someone with authority making a declaration about something, a judge making a declaration about something. And notice after he says count, he says count others more significant than yourself. What Paul is saying is with the authority you've been given, declare, decide, rule, judge that the other people around you are more significant than you. I've noticed in Christianity an emphasis on the authority we have in the kingdom. We are daughters of the king or we are sons of the king and we are indeed sons and daughters of the king. But I've also noticed a movement within Christianity that begins to say that authority is all about us and the life that we wanna have for ourselves. And that's contradictory to the teachings of scripture. You are a son and you are a daughter of the king and you have authority and God calls you to use that authority to declare that everyone else around me is more important than me. Their interests are more significant than mine. Now, have you met people? (laughs) That's hard. But the point here is not what others are. The point is what you count others to be. In a world where value is based on performance and what you can do for me, declare everyone more significant than yourself. On Friday night, we had the privilege as a church to host uh, the Tim Tebow Foundation's Night to Shine. And what we had the opportunity to do on Friday night was serve and declare value to people that sometimes the world doesn't give that value to. And what I appreciated probably most of all about Friday night is the fact that there were these parents, these caregivers who are coming in, who their life is devoted to service to someone in many cases who they don't tangibly give them love back. In some cases they do, but not in all cases. And here we were to say, hey, we're with you, we're partnering with you, and Friday night was great. And we just have to keep that going, church. It's not just a Friday night thing, it's an everyday thing. It's an every weekend thing. It's an every Wednesday night thing for us. It's to say, we're here to carry each other's burdens. We're here to serve one another, not based on what you do for me or give to me, but based on what Christ has done for me. And it's not just in those instances, it's also the people who are challenging because there are people who we will go to church with and we will do life with and there is no evidence, physical evidence that there's issues going on, but there are things in their mind. There are things in their heart. There are things in their past that make them difficult. There is brokenness all around us and we want them to walk the aisle and to instantly change and be fixed. And it doesn't work like that. And I love you, but you're not all fixed. Ministry life is saying, I'm gonna continue to give to others and count others more significant than myself, not because of the what they will give back or the recognition I will get or the stories we can tell or the videos we can play or the pictures we can post. But because of the cross of Jesus Christ, that's what we're called to. And even, listen, even when they're ungrateful for you, 
and your service. And if you will adopt this mindset, if we will collectively adopt this mindset, it will transform homes, it will transform churches, it will transform communities and impact the world. John Maxwell says that when somebody loves you with no strings attached and no personal agenda, it is the most freeing thing in the world. Church, we ought to love people with no strings attached and no agenda of our own, empowering people to walk in the freedom of Jesus Christ. Will you count others as worthy of your help and encouragement? Not are they worthy, but do you count them worthy? That is our duty as followers of Jesus Christ. The fourth joyful behavior is sensitivity. In verse four, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interest. Now, I don't know about you, I, I, I struggle with pride, it's gravity. And so reading these verses, it's like, okay, first I need to be unified, put my personal agenda away, okay, and you know, one mind, all that. And then it's like, you get up from that being hit by that wave, and then you got, okay, now humility, right? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, be humble, okay. And you get back up and there's another wave and it's like, hey, consider others more significant than yourselves, all right? Now, also, don't look to your own interest in verse four. And so uh, it doesn't say, though, let me say this. It doesn't say don't look to your interest or don't count yourself significant. So you can care about your interest. You can have lunch today, okay? I know some of you were thinking, all right, I'm not gonna eat. You can go to sleep. You can take a break. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse nine through 12 says it's a good witness that you care for your own needs. But we are all, we have to recognize this, naturally self-centered. It comes as natural to us as breathing. If you don't believe this, let me ask you this question. When you look at a group photo, who do you look at first? Okay, see, that's all, the reaction was enough. And you decide if it's a good photo based on how you look. There are eight people in my home. Yes, that's a lot. There are eight people in my home. And there's a photo we take and seven of them can look good. And I look terrible. I'm like, that's not a good photo, right? So we have to take a lot of photos for me to look good in the picture. But you get the point. This is why Jesus says in marriage, love your wife like your own body because it's natural to care for our own body. This is why he says, love your neighbor as yourself. So he's saying, don't look just to your own interest. That's natural, but also to the interest of others. Now it's interesting. The word interest is actually just a filler there in the English translation. In the original language, it's open-ended. All that is specified is look to your own or the others. So it could be anything. Let each of you not look to your own finances or your own family or your own health or your own reputation or your own success or your own happiness. Don't just think about your desires. Don't just think about your strategies for your life. Don't just work and plan towards what you want, but look to the finances of others. Look to the families of others. Look to the health of others. Look to the reputation of others. Look to the success of others. Make the good of others the focus of your interest and strategy and work. And this isn't temporary friendliness. It's decided kindness. I, I remember there was a movement uh, in Christianity probably about 15 years ago. Uh, they put out all these videos. The movement was called I Am Second. 
And uh, they were great, right? Like it was all these actual famous people in many cases who were just saying, hey, I'm not living for me. I'm living for God. But I remember thinking because of the Bible, like it should be I am third. Because if we understand scripture, it's God, then others, then me, right? And I actually thought about creating that ministry, but I thought that'd be like doing six second abs versus eight second abs. And so I thought we'll just leave it. But some of you got that reference too. But that's it. Look, when I first started becoming a follower of Jesus, I remember hearing people say, joy comes from Jesus, others you. And that's cliche, but some things are cliche for a reason. The life you're called to live, the joy you find comes from saying it's Jesus and then it's others and then it's me. And I need to be sensitive to the interests and needs of other people. All right, here's my application today. Find your joy in making others joyful. Find your joy in making others joyful. Understanding that joy comes from Christ. This series is called Our Brand. And so we're talking about our brand as people of God. What is our brand? And and our brand is the joy that comes from Christ. Now, I don't know how much you're on social media or whatever, but today there are these things called brand ambassadors, right? And you might even get solicited to be a brand ambassador where you represent a product. And so maybe you get that product for free or you get paid to wear that product. I'm still trying to become a brand ambassador for sneakers, but nobody's hiring me. But you know, we, you, what you do is you carry that brand, you talk about that brand. Our brand is the joy in Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ, appealing for people to be reconciled to God and understand the joy that comes from him. And so that needs to be flowing out of us. So if you get home from work and you wanna watch TV or you wanna scroll on your phone and your child who's only gonna be young for a season says, will you play with me, dad? Will you play with me, mom? Don't just think about how tired you are but by an act of gospel-centered, Christ-exalting denial of self, put their interest before the pleasures of your relaxation. If your spouse has some clear needs, don't just think about he or she and how they are doing at meeting your needs. But out of gospel-centered, Christ-exalting denial of self, put their needs before your own. If your friend or coworker needs someone to talk to or help them, but they're not the kind of friend or coworker that would listen or talk, because of the gospel and Christ-exalting denial of self, be there, listen, help. If your church has things that need to be done, don't just think about those who aren't doing what they should be doing or how it infringes upon the things you wanna do, but out of gospel-centered, Christ-exalting denial of self, put the needs of the church before your own. I could keep going and going. And here's why. Verse five through eight, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is yours. This is who you are. Who? Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We will dissect these verses next week. But all we need to do 
is look at Christ. And there die all of our selfish aspirations. Jesus didn't have vain glory. He had all glory. And yet he made himself nothing for our sake. This past Sunday night, if you were here for Vision Night, we celebrated that our church in six years uh, paid off our loan uh, that we had taken out and um, way ahead of schedule, very aggressively. We have a picture of us attempting to burn the note. We are debt-free. We don't owe anything as a church in terms to the bank. Praise God for that. We can celebrate that right now. We do not have a debt with the bank. We do not owe any money, but we do have a debt. Our debt is reflected in this picture, which is just a screenshot I took. Go ahead and put the screenshot, not not me, there you go. Uh, Of how many people live in a 10 mile radius, actually four years ago, uh, from Niceville, from city of Niceville, center of Niceville, 39,198 people and growing, right? City manager growing. 39,198 people who we have a debt to. Romans chapter 13, verse eight says, no, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. We owe it to each other to love one another, and we owe it to this community to love them with the love of Jesus Christ and to help them to see the joy that comes from Jesus Christ. And why do Christians walk through life feeling a humble sense that we owe service to people rather than them owing us? The answer is that Christ died for us and forgave us and accepted us and justified us and gave us eternal life and made made us heirs with the world when he owed us nothing. He treated us as worthy of his service when we were not worthy of his service and he took thought not only for his own interest but for ours. He considered us more significant than himself. Jesus makes selfish people servants. And I realize today that what might be getting in the way is your pursuit of vain glory. But I pray that Jesus would help you see the emptiness of that and meet you right where you are. I wanna close by reading a children's book by Max Lucado. It's a book we have in our house called The Tallest of Smalls. And it expresses what I'm talking about very simply. And sometimes as adults, we need to hear it put simply. I warn you that in the first service, I cried when I was reading this because I'm getting soft. Perhaps you don't know, then maybe you do. The two smalls of Stiltsville and their story for you. Where people like we, some tiny, some tall, with games and schools and clocks on the wall, keep an eye on the time. For each evening at six, they meet in the circle for the purpose of sticks. Tall stilts upon which a stilts billion can strut. 
and be lifted above those down in the rut. The less and the least, the shy and shyer, the not-cools and have-nots who want to go higher, but can't. Because in the giving of sticks, their names are not called, they never get picked. Like Ollie, the boy whose pants have a patch, whose legs are too skinny, his socks never match. He laughs with a snort and sleeps with a drool, too common and dull for the gang of the cool. Who decides who is special, who's in and who's out, who's better, who's best, and declares with a shout, you're awesome, you're pretty, you're clever or funny, and gives out a prize, not of medals or money, not pink cotton candy or a house someone built, but the oddest of gifts, a gift of some stilts. He wanted those stilts so much he would plea from the midst of the crowd, pick me, please pick me. And one night, to Ollie's surprise, they did. You're cool, they declared. Hip, hip, hooray. Come up to the front for this is your day. To join the classy and sassy and move up the ladder, when they lifted him up, he knew that he mattered. He looked down from above, he looked down his nose at the common, the plain. Yes, he smirked as he rose. But his smile didn't last, for soon he discovered that birds like to perch, and soon he was covered with pigeons and buzzards and all flying things. They plopped on his shoulders and rested their wings while he struggled to walk and maintain some balance. Do I have this skill? Do I have this talent? He reached for the sky with a tilt and a sway. Look out below. He fell straight away into the two smalls, right back where he started, among the stiltless and small, and oh, how it smarted. When the gang of the cool and the jilt of all jilts didn't offer to help, they just took his stilts. And there he sat, he might not have moved, might have sat there and cried, except for the touch, he fell on his side. So gentle, so caring that he looked up to see, Jesus smiled down and say, come walk with me. Keep your feet on the ground, refuse to be stilted, choose low over high, leave the system tip tilted. You're precious, not too short, or too small, I made you remember, you're mine after all. So we went home, took the clock off the wall, enough of the stilts, enough of it all. I may not be much, the smallest of smalls, but since Jesus loves me, I'm the tallest of talls. Heavenly Father, by the power of your spirit and the reminder of the fact that you flip the system. Help us not to live for imaginary stilts that make us feel temporary exaltation, but help us to remember that you have invited us to walk with you, that you have promised us eternal glory, that to die is gain. And so for us to live is Christ. May we respond to you now with a great confidence that you can and will work in and through us to flip the system and to help people see their worth in you. 
May you be glorified now as we respond in Jesus' name, amen.